Chapter Three of The Little Duke. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, October two thousand seven. The Little Duke by Charlotte M. Young. Chapter Three. Duke William of the Longsword was buried the next morning in high pomp and state, with many a prayer and psalm chanted over his grave. When this was over, little Richard, who had all the time stood or knelt nearest the corpse, in one dull, heavy dream of wonder and sorrow, was led back to the palace. And there his long, heavy black garments were taken off, and he was dressed in his short scarlet tunic. His hair was carefully arranged, and then he came down again into the hall, where there was a great assembly of barons, some in armor, some in long furred gowns, who had all been attending his father's burial. Richard, as he was desired by Sir Eric de Centeville, took off his cap. And bowed low in reply to the reverences with which they all greeted his entrance, and he then slowly crossed the hall and descended the steps from the door, while they formed into a procession behind him, according to their ranks, the Duke of Brittany first, and then all the rest, down to the poorest knight who held his manor immediately from the Duke of Normandy. Thus they proceeded in slow and solemn order till they came to the church of Our Lady. The clergy were there already, ranged in ranks on each side of the choir, and the bishops, in their mitres and rich robes, each with his pastoral staff in his hand, were standing round the altar. As the little duke entered, there arose from all the voices in the chancel the full, loud, clear chant of Te Deum Laudamus, echoing among the dark vaults of the roof. To that sound, Richard walked up the choir to a large, Heavy, cross-legged, carved chair raised on two steps, just before the steps of the altar began, and there he stood, Bernard de Harcourt and Eric de Centeville on each side of him, and all his other vassals in due order in the choir. After the beautiful chant of the hymn was ended, the service for the Holy Communion began. When the time came for the offering, each noble gave gold or silver, and lastly. Rainulf of Ferrier came up to the step of the altar with a cushion on which was placed a circlet of gold, the ducal coronet, and another baron, following him closely, carried a long, heavy sword with a cross handle. The Archbishop of Rouen received both coronet and sword and laid them on the altar. Then the service proceeded. At that time, the rite of confirmation was administered in infancy. And Richard, who had been confirmed by his godfather, the Archbishop of Rouen, immediately after his baptism, knelt in solemn awe to receive the other holy sacrament from his hands, as soon as all the clergy had communicated. When the administration was over, Richard was led forward to the step of the altar by Count Bernard and Sir Eric and the Archbishop, laying one hand upon both his as he held them clasped together. Demanded of him, in the name of God and of the people of Normandy, whether he would be their good and true ruler, guard them from their foes, maintain truth, punish inequity, and protect the church. I will, 
answered Richard's young, trembling voice. So help me God! And he knelt and kissed the book of the Holy Gospels, which the Archbishop offered him. It was a great and awful oath, and he dreaded to think that he had taken it. He still knelt, put both hands over his face, and whispered, O oh God, my Father, help me to keep it. The Archbishop waited till he rose, and then, turning him with his face to the people, said, Richard, by the grace of God, I invest thee with the ducal mantle of Normandy. Two of the bishops then hung round his shoulders a crimson velvet mantle, furred with ermine, which, made as it was for a grown man, hung heavily on the poor child's shoulders, and lay in heaps on the ground. The archbishop then set the golden coronet on his long, flowing hair, where it hung so loosely on the little head that Sir Eric was obliged to put his hand to it to hold it safe. And lastly, the long, straight, two-handed sword was brought and placed in his hand, with another solemn bidding to use it ever in maintaining the right. It should have been girded to his side, but the great sword was so much taller than the little duke, that, as it stood upright by him, he was obliged to raise his arm to put it round the handle. He then had to return to his throne, which was not done without some difficulty, encumbered as he was, but Osmond held up the train of his mantle. Sir Eric kept the coronet on his head, and he himself held fast and lovingly the sword, though the Count of Harcourt offered to carry it for him. He was lifted up to his throne, and then came the paying him homage. Alan, Duke of Brittany, was the first to kneel before him, and with his hand between those of the duke, he swore to be his man, to obey him, and to pay him feudal service for his dukedom of Brittany. In return Richard swore to be his good lord, and to protect him from all his foes. Then followed Bernard the Dane, and many another, each repeating the same formulary, as their large rugged hands were clasped within those little soft fingers." Many a kind and loving eye was bent in compassion on the orphan child. Many a strong voice faltered with earnestness as it produced the vow, and many a brave, stalwart heart heaved with grief for the murdered father, and tears flowed down the war-worn cheeks which had met the fiercest storms of the northern ocean, as they bent before the young, fatherless boy, whom they loved for the sake of his conquering grandfather, and his brave and pious father." Few Normans were there whose hearts did not glow at the touch of those small hands, with the love almost of a parent for their young duke. The ceremony of receiving homage lasted long, and Richard, though interested and touched at first, grew very weary. The crown and mantle were so heavy, the faces succeeded each other like figures in an endless dream, and the constant repetition of the same words was very tedious. He grew sleepy, he longed to jump up, to lean to the right or left, or to speak something besides that regular form. He gave one great yawn, but it brought him such a frown from the stern face of Bernard, as quite to wake him for a few minutes, and make him sit upright, and receive the next vassal, with as much attention as he had shown the first. But he looked imploringly at Sir Eric, as if to ask if it ever would be over. At last, far down among the barons, came one at whose sight Richard revived a little. It was a boy only a few years older than himself, perhaps about ten, with a pleasant brown face, black hair, 
and quick black eyes which glanced with a look between friendliness and respect up into the little duke's gazing face. Richard listened eagerly for his name, and was refreshed at the sound of the boyish voice which pronounced, I, Alberic de Montemar, am thy liegeman and vassal for my castle and barony of Montemar sur Ept. When Alberic moved away, Richard followed him with his eye as far as he could to his place in the cathedral, and was taken by surprise when he found the next baron kneeling before him. The ceremony of homage came to an end at last, and Richard would fain have run all the way to the palace to shake off his weariness, but he was obliged to head the procession again, and even when he reached the castle hall his toils were not over, for there was a great state banquet spread out, and he had to sit in the high chair where he remembered being on his father's knee last Christmas day, all the time that the barons feasted round and held grave converse. Richard's best comfort all this time was in watching Osmond de Centeville and Alberic de Montemar, who, with the other youths who were not yet knighted, were waiting on those who sat at the table. At last he grew so very weary that he fell fast asleep in the corner of his chair, and did not wake till he was startled by the rough voice of Bernard de Harcourt, calling him to rouse up and bid the Duke of Brittany farewell. "'Poor child,' said Duke Allen as Richard rose up, startled. He is over-wearied with this day's work. Take care of him, Count Bernard. Thou a kindly nurse, but a rough one for such a babe. Ha! my young lord, your colour mantles at being called a babe. I crave your pardon, for you are a fine spirit. And hark you, Lord Richard of Normandy, I have little cause to love your race, and little right, I trow, had King Charles the Simple to call us free Bretons liegemen to a race of plundering northern pirates. To Duke Rollo's might my father never gave his homage. Nay, nor did I yield it for all Duke William's long sword. But I did pay to his generosity and forbearance, and now I grant it to thy weakness, and to his noble memory. I doubt not that the recreant Frank, Louis, whom he restored to his throne, will strive to profit by thy youth and helplessness, and should that be, remember that thou hast no surer friend than Alan of Brittany. Fare thee well, my young duke. Farewell, sir, said Richard, willingly giving his hand to be shaken by his kind vassal, and watching him as Sir Eric attended him from the hall. Fair words, but I trust not the Breton, muttered Bernard. Hatred is deeply ingrained in them. He should know what the Frank king is made of, said Rainulf de Ferrier. He was bred up with him in the days that they were both exiles at the court of King Ethelstane of England. Ay, and thanks to Duke William, that either Louis or Alan are not exiles still. Now we shall see whose gratitude is worth most, the Franks or the Bretons. I suspect the Norman valour will be the best to trust to. Yes, and how will Norman valour prosper without treasure? Who knows what gold is in the Duke's coffers? There was some consultation here in a low voice, and the next thing Richard heard distinctly was that one of the nobles held up a silver chain and key, saying that they had been found on the duke's neck, and that he had kept them, thinking that they doubtless led to something of importance. "'Oh, yes,' said Richard eagerly. "'I know it. He told me it was the key to his greatest treasure.' 
the Normans heard of this with great interest, and it was resolved that several of the most trusted persons, among whom were the Archbishop of Rouen, Abbot Martin of Jumege, and the Count of Harcourt, should go immediately in search of this precious hoard. Richard accompanied them up the narrow, rough stone stairs to the large, dark apartment where his father had slept. Though a prince's chamber, it had little furniture, a low, uncurtained bed, a cross on a ledge near its head, a rude table, a few chairs, and two large chests were all it contained. Harcourt tried the lid of one of the chests. It opened, and proved to be full of wearing apparel. He went to the other, which was smaller, much more carved, and ornamented with very handsome ironwork. It was locked, and putting in the key, it fitted, the lock turned, and the chest was opened. The Normans pressed eagerly to see their duke's greatest treasure. It was a robe of serge, and a pair of sandals, such as were worn in the abbey of Jumege. "'Ha! Is this all? What didst say, child?' cried Bernard the Dane, hastily. "'He told me it was his greatest treasure,' repeated Richard. "'And it was,' said Abbot Martin. Then the good abbot told them the history, part of which was already known to some of them. About five or six years before, Duke William had been hunting in the forest of Jumege, when he had suddenly come on the ruins of the abbey, which had been wasted thirty or forty years previously by the sea-king Hasting. Two old monks of the original brotherhood still survived, and came forth to greet the duke, and offer him their hospitality. "'Aye,' said Bernard, "'well do I remember their bread. We asked if it was made of fir-bark, like that of our brethren of Norway.' William, then an eager, thoughtless young man, turned with disgust from this wretched fare, and throwing the old men some gold, galloped on to enjoy his hunting. In the course of the sport he was left alone, and encountered a wild boar, which threw him down, trampled on him, and left him stretched senseless on the ground, severely injured. His companions coming up carried him, as the nearest place of shelter, to the ruins of Jumege, where the two old monks gladly received him in the remaining portion of their house. As soon as he recovered his senses, he earnestly asked their pardon for his pride, and the scorn he had shown to the poverty and patient suffering which he should have reverenced. William had always been a man who chose the good, and refused the evil, but this accident, and the long illness that followed it, made him far more thoughtful and serious than he had ever been before. He made preparing for death and eternity his first object, and thought less of his worldly affairs, his wars, and his ducal state. He rebuilt the old abbey, endowed it richly, and sent for Martin himself from France to become the abbot. He delighted in nothing so much as praying there, conversing with the abbot, and hearing him read holy books, and he felt his temporal affairs, and the state and splendor of his rank, so great a temptation, that he had one day come to the abbot, and entreated to be allowed to lay them aside, and to become a brother of the order. But Martin had refused to receive his vows. He had told him that he had no right to neglect or forsake the duties of the station which God had appointed him, that it would be a sin to leave the post which had been given him to defend, and that the way marked out for him to serve God was by doing justice among his people, and using his power to defend the right. Not till he had done his allotted work 
and his son was old enough to take his place as ruler of the Normans, might he cease from his active duties, quit the turmoil of the world, and seek the repose of the cloister. It was in this hope of peaceful retirement that William had delighted to treasure up the humble garments that he hoped one day to wear in peace and holiness. "'And, oh, my noble duke!' exclaimed Abbot Martin, bursting into tears as he finished his narration. "'The Lord hath been very gracious unto thee. He has taken thee home to thy rest, long before thou didst dare to hope for it.' Slowly, and with subdued feelings, the Norman barons left the chamber. Richard, whom they seemed to have almost forgotten, wandered to the stairs to find his way to the room where he had slept last night. He had not made many steps before he heard Osmond's voice say, "'Here, my lord!' He looked up, saw a white cap at a doorway a little above him. He bounded up and flew into Dame Astrida's outstretched arms. How glad he was to sit in her lap and lay his wearied head on her bosom, while with a worn-out voice he exclaimed, "'Oh, Fru Astrida, I am very, very tired of being Duke of Normandy.'" End of chapter 3